So I'd invite you to turn there. It's page 447 in the church Bibles. If you don't have one, or of course, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, page 447, Psalm 146. If you're wondering why this morning we're at Psalm 146, we have chosen to spend the whole summer in the Psalms. So week by week, we've been working through the Psalms. We started with one, and then Psalm 2, and then Psalm 13, and now after a week off, Psalm 146. So I'm going to read the whole Psalm. And if you're still turning there, if you have questions about Christ, the Bible, or what you've heard this morning, or what we said this morning already, when our time is done, I'll do my best to try to answer those questions that you might have. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. So let's just take a moment of silence and then we'll set ourselves to pray in Christ's name. Our gracious covenant-keeping God, how we give glory to you for what we've said already by way of song and by words. We thank you, Lord, also for the extra day of rest that many of us enjoyed this, this holiday week, weekend. So we thank you for the, the common things, for food and the rest and the activities that we enjoyed. Thank you for being so generous and so consistent, Father, in our lives. And we would ask that we would bring glory to your name in the proper way that we would approach these graces. And may we never be not thankful to you for these common things that, that make life bearable in this fallen world. And so, Father, this morning our, our request is very simple, that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us our Savior, and that you would make this book, Father, live in us. And we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, just very briefly, I do want to thank you sincerely for the previous week that I had off. I always appreciate it and enjoy it, and I did quite a few things, one of which that in only a few hours, I repaired our entire home air conditioning system. Okay? So you should immediately be impressed. And so if you talk to my wife later on, and she begins to tell you silly things like it was an easy fix, you just didn't have the safety switch connected correctly, whatever you do, do not believe her. Okay? That's just crazy talk. It was a very complicated process. And so we're going to leave it at that. So just a few remarks to set us on our way this morning. So 
all week long I had this thought that we can safely assume that as Jesus Christ walked this earth, the practice of the holy habit of public worship in the synagogues week by week is what Jesus would have done. And he would have sung and he would have prayed these very psalms that we're working through. Now, I want you to understand that for most of church history, that these psalms were sung and prayed. It was only somewhere around the 16th or 17th century that um, new songs, if you would, came into um, their public worship. And so I don't know about you, but as I was thinking about those things, I, I just found it terrifically humbling and thrilling. Thrilling because it's what Jesus was doing, and it's humbling because it's what Jesus was doing. There's a gentleman named Christopher Ash who said recently that probably most sermons on the Psalms in most churches are constrained to like two or three of what he called the top hits, so that most churches and most sermons in those churches stick with the more familiar Psalms, Psalm 23, Psalm 139, Psalm 100, Psalm 150, and so on. However, it seems to me that if our prayer and our praises is going to be shaped by the Psalms as a whole, if we're going to be able to praise like Jesus Christ and pray like Jesus Christ, we're going to need not only to feed from the top stuff, but we're going to need to tend and feed on that road less traveled in the Psalter. Secondly, th- secondly then, week by week, I've tried to give you some help on how we are to approach our understanding and our study of the psalm so that we don't mishandle the psalms or confuse the way that we approach them. Because if we do, then all of a sudden our understanding of who God is is going to be corrupted. So then we might be tempted to create a God from the Psalms that we make in our own image, just the way we would want Him, or if we only go to certain Psalms and stick with them, then there's kind of an imbalance about who God is because we're not looking at the whole picture. And so we need to be warned by that. And one of the ways that we can do that is to ask these three questions Whenever you approach your understanding of the Psalms, so for example, Psalm 146, we should ask, first of all, what does it mean, or what would have meant, excuse me, for an old covenant believer to sing and praise the Psalm? So for example, in Luke chapter 2, there's Simeon and there's Anna. They were waiting for the Messiah. How would they have heard Psalm 146 when they sang it or when they prayed it? Secondly, what would it have meant for Jesus of Nazareth to sing and pray this psalm? Because as I said, I take it for granted that Sabbath by Sabbath, Jesus would have joined in. When it was time to sing them, he would have sung them. When it was time to pray them, he would have prayed them. And then thirdly, what does it mean for us corporately in Christ to sing this psalm? Because it's such a dangerous thing to set aside the new covenant when we read the psalms. And it becomes quite dangerous to make the psalms only personal or only moralistic, in other ways, a, a do-better type of sermon. So as you ask yourself those questions, what does it mean for an old covenant believer to read this? What would it meant for Jesus to read this? What does it mean for new covenant believers to read the Psalms? Then we will be helped in a very, very wonderful way. So you can see there, if your Bible is open to Psalm 146, there's the first two verses there. This is a psalm of praise. And verses 1 and 2 is essentially a decision to praise. That's our first point. If you received a worship folder, you can turn to the back there. A decision to praise, verses 1 and 2. And so this call to praise in verse 1 actually is in the plural. So if you ever wondered what the word hallelujah meant, the word hallelujah means praise the Lord, and it's a plural word. It's corporate. It means everybody, not just one person, but everyone praise 
the Lord. So you guys, or for those of you who, who live or used to live below the Mason-Dixon line, you all, all of you people praise the Lord. And then in verse 2, he's, the writer says, I will praise the Lord all my life as long as I live. Now, it needs not be said, but we're going to say it anyway, that it's really, really important that people praise the Lord. Let me give you three reasons. Number one, it's important for theological reasons that people praise the Lord, because if God is not praised, then God is not known. God is immeasurably great, and therefore to know Him and to praise Him, therefore if He's not praised, then He will not be known. So a few weeks ago, I was on a bus with a number of people, and there on the bus was a very pleasant young lady who was an absolute joy to talk to. And so through a series of questions that we had together, I found out that she had the same boyfriend for 14 years and that she'd been living with him for 10 years. And I said to her, I said, wow, you are to be commended for staying together so long. And then I asked her, but why haven't you gotten married? And she said, why? What for? Things are fine. And at that point, I was able to open the door to this postmodern young woman about God and his law and his glory, about his gospel and how a Christian marriage gives a picture of the Trinity, of the gospel, of God's commitment to and God's relationship with his people, which says God is never, ever going to abandon his people and how in God's covenant love that he's so committed to his people that he's willing to go public with his love And he binds himself by way of a contract that's a public contract and public ceremony, which is why a public ceremony is so crucial to that claim. So that everybody will know that she's not ashamed of him and he's not ashamed of her and that they belong together and no one can come between them. I said a whole lot more. She listened so well. Okay, that's one reason. Number two, it's important to praise God for spiritual reasons which is if praise to God does not characterize our life as a Christian, if joylessness characterizes us, we put ourselves in a place of great, great danger where we are in danger of becoming inclined, listen carefully, to deceitful voices that promise us a better life elsewhere or a better life another way. Okay? A better life elsewhere or a better life another way. Because I think it would be fair to say that that in popular Christianity, there's this kind of subculture of what we'll call moaners, where their whole approach to the grace of life God gave them in Christ is moaning. Most things are never right. Most things are always wrong. There always seems to be a struggle. And I say to you, because of who God is and what God has given us in Christ, we put ourselves in a terrific place of danger, thereby becoming vulnerable to voices that promise us a better life elsewhere or another way as if God somehow, and here's the bad part, as if God somehow has shortchanged us when he changed us by his grace. So for the addict, the addict is the one who needs one new high event after the other to keep them in the right. The Christian while certainly thanking God for all the new joys that he gives us and the new pleasures that he gives us, we put all our stock in old joys, right? The old rugged cross that Jesus Christ was buried in our bo- his body, our sin. That's, that's where our joy is. That's Romans 8, right? What can separate you from the love of God? So can trouble? No. Can hardships? No. No food or drink? No. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so, of course, that's something to praise God about. 
So why should we praise God? Well, it's praising is important for theological reasons. If God is not praised, then God is not known. It's important to praise God for spiritual reasons. Our, our spiritual condition has much to do with this idea of praising God. And then third, it's important to praise God because this is what we were made for. Now understand this. This is C.S. Lewis. Humanity does not exist for his own sake. And then he quotes Colossians 1.16. We were made by Christ and we were made for Christ. And then he quotes Revelation 4.11. We were made for God's pleasure. And then he goes on. And contrary to popular opinion, man is not the center of things. And when we love God unimpeded, we shall in fact be happy. So a while back, a gentleman named John Steinbeck wrote this book. It's called Travels with Charlie. And Charlie is, is John Steinbeck's dog. And so he wrote this book as he traveled across the United States from state to state. And one of the things he said in this book was he was in New York. He was headed towards Maine, northward towards Maine. He stops at a restaurant. He meets a waitress who is listless, who is joyless, and she's essentially empty. And this is what he says about her. Some people can saturate a room with vitality, but there are others, and this dame was one of them, his words, not mine, this dame was one of them who can drain off energy and joy and suck pleasure dry and get no sustenance from it. Such people have a grayness about them. Such people have a grayness about them. All grumble, 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 self-pity. It's so hard. God, forgive us if we do that. God, forgive me when I do that. So listen carefully. When you think about praise, the worst thing you can do is start rating yourself on how good you are at praising God. Because frankly, we would all be able to admit, I hope, that we can praise God much better. So don't be shallow when you think about praising God, responding as a hypocrite and say, well, you know, I have praising the immutable, infinite, self-existent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, good, just, gracious God over all things. I have praising God down just fine. Thank you very much. In fact, I think I'm one of the best. Don't do that because praise is not just telling God how good he is, it's, but it's telling other people how good he is. And it means sometimes praising God in difficult, hostile environments, in difficult, hostile situations, in suffering, and even in our unbelief. And yes, we can praise God with words, and words are good, but words backed with action is where the game of praise is played. So don't be shallow. And then secondly, don't wrongly respond as some kind of zealot. Okay, so you say, okay, you're right, Joe. I am wrong. I need to do better. Thank you for the exhortation. I feel awful. Thank you for making me feel awful. I had way too great of a holiday weekend. I need to feel awful. And so I'm going to write in my journal, as soon as I get home, big bold letters, praise him, praise him, praise him. And Joe, if you just point me to the direction, off I go. And I can do it. Just, again, just point me the way, and I promise you, I can do it. Loved ones, that smells too much of pride. And that smells to me like too much of self-assurance. But if you're like me and you hear praise God, you'll likely just be in despair. You know, oh, here we go again. Another thing that I'm not getting right. One more thing on my list. Yes, it's true. You know, I really didn't fix my air condition. Okay, there it is. I didn't fix it. I messed up. I wasted $60 on other parts. Okay. And now I am not praising God the way I should. You know, thank you for telling me that. So, 
the better way to approach this and the better question that we should ask if, if it's true that we should praise God, and it is, John chapter 4, Jesus said, praise him in spirit and truth. You can see in Psalm 146, verse 2b, praise God with all our life, changing our diapers at our desk with a hammer with our behavior, praise him. Verse 2a, praise God with everything. If those things are true, then how are we to be moved to praise? Because that's the question. Knowing that exhortation alone will not do it because exhortation alone will not do it. So I was in a church worship service about three summers ago while we were on vacation. And we were in this church and I heard 45 minutes of exhortation to praise God. It was praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. And by the end of those 45 minutes, you know, I needed Prozac or something. My head was spinning. They told me nothing, nothing of the why I should praise God. They only told me the what that I should praise God. So you and I beating ourselves over the head, telling each other to praise God is not how it's going to happen. This is why I love kids. I love the questions that the kids ask their parents. The why question. Why do we have to go this way? And why do we have to do it this way? And why, you know, why, why, why? Because that question demands a reasonable response because because we can't just keep telling them because I said it. And that's not going to work forever. So our exhortations to the kids is not, we need to give them some, some meat. So the question is, how is this psalm of praise going to happen? So, so I've worked very, very hard to tell you that when you go to the psalms, the first person that you look for is not yourself, but Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed the psalms, he praised with the psalms, but Jesus preached himself from the psalms as we learned in Luke chapter 24. So there's this big, thick German commentary on the Psalms, and, and it's one of my sources that I use this week quoted from it. In fact, it's one of those books that if, if you're loyal to it, even though it reads like a telephone directory, it'll give you a terrific quote if you stay loyal to the book. And so you know, probably most of you know, that at the end of the Psalms, the last five Psalms are calls for praise. And so they just shoot out like a rocket. Praise God in this. Praise God in these things. All things praise God and so on. And so then Klaus Vesterman, the man who wrote the big, thick German commentary, this is what he writes. All these voices calling for praise, called for a praise that was yet to be given. Think, all those voices calling for praise, called for a praise that was yet to be given. Now that is quite remarkable. The writer said, Israel, you need to praise God. Don't just tell each other how great God is. Tell the world how great God is by lip and by life, by your example. But nobody did. Israel might have done it sporadically. They might have done it occasionally. But not, verse 2, fully with their whole life. But, and this is the crucial part. You go into a synagogue somewhere in Galilee, somewhere in the year 2025 AD, there's a young man sitting in that synagogue He's with his family, and he knows that he has been, in, has been given this thought, and it's just been embedded in his head that God is calling him to a mission that will involve unspeakable suffering. So in a very real sense, way back in 2025 AD, this young man has to make a decision in light of all that he knows. So when the cantor of the synagogue would come forward, and he would call for the people to praise the Lord, this young man had to answer again and again with truth. Yes, I will praise the Lord. So the question comes, will I praise God in light of all that he set before me, in light of all that I've given up in heaven? The young man says, yes. Will I praise God when I bleed on a cross? 
Will I praise God in my beatings? Will I praise God as I think on things in the garden, as I feel my whole psyche just about ready to shut down? This young man answers, yes. Yes, I will praise God. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And not only that, I'm going to tell everyone how great my father is. I'll tell the whole world how great he is. I'll make him known to the world with my whole life. You see, loved ones, here's the point. All that Israel could not and would not do in the privileged task of praising God, Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ did. And it's the exact same thing for us. Listen to Christopher Ashe. A heart of a pastor and a congregation is turned to praise God, not by exhortation, but by gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth leads the praise. Jesus of Nazareth equips the praise. Jesus of Nazareth is the one man in all of human history who has read verse 2. Look at verse 2. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Jesus of Nazareth is the one man in all of human history who has read verse 2 and has done it with every fiber of his being in every moment of his existence. Because you and I cannot say that. So if we read verse 2 and say in kind of a cocky, kind of a bombastic way, I can do this. I'm going to praise God as long as I live with my whole life. If we say that, then loved ones, we're no better than Peter when he denied Jesus Christ. Remember what Peter says? You know, if every one of those guys can't do it, you know, Jesus, I can do it. I'm the only one who can praise you proper. You just want to say, Peter, be quiet. Don't say those things. The Lord Jesus Christ has started the praise. The Lord Jesus Christ leads the praise. And our privilege is to join in His power in His praise. And loved ones, that is the gospel. Jesus leads the praise and we are invited to follow Him as He equips us to praise. So, to avoid any kind of moralistic approach to the Psalms, because moralistic approach to the Psalms is empty air. It either feeds human ego, I could do this right, or it bashes human psyche. There's just no way I can do this right. So to avoid that, what do we do? Well, we preach Christ. Even from the Psalms, yes, we preach Jesus Christ even in the Psalms, and we rely on Him, and we rely on His righteousness even in the Gospel. Remember, or even in the Psalms. Remember Galatians 2? This is Paul. The life I live, including praising God, I will live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So if righteousness could be gained, if if praising God could be gained by me doing my best, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. He died for nothing. And that takes us To the second point, the first point, a decision to praise, and that decision begins with Jesus Christ. Second one, a deliverer to praise. This is verses 3 to 9. And so to answer the question, why is it that the Lord is to be praised, the answer begins with a warning. That's verses 3 and 4. Do you see it there? Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men. In other words, don't put your trust in influential people. That's what the psalmist is saying. Don't put your your trust in gifted people, rich people, powerful people, talented people, people who can make things happen, the kind of people that we might be tempted to put our trust in. The word trust in verse 3 means 
Don't attach yourself to them. Don't feel safe with them. Don't become in union with them alone, with these influential uh, sons of Adam. That's a good translation of what mortal men is. Don't do that. So you have a difficult job, and your boss is too much for you. And he or she is just squeezing the very life out of you. And you say to yourself, you know, if only I could get a better job, if only I could have a more considerate boss, then I could find hope, and then I could be helped, and then I'll praise God. Someone says, I'm just so tired of being alone. The long nights, they're just way too much for me. I want a husband. I want a wife. And they say to themselves, if I can find a husband, or if I can find a wife, then I can find hope, and then I can find help. Someone's struggling with addictive behavior, and they say, if I could just get to that right clinic, if I could just get to that group, then I can find help, and then I can find hope. Or, listen, parents, parents anxious about their children. You know, if only I could get my child into that group, if I could get them to that, to that skill level, if I could get them to that school, then we'll find hope, and then we'll find help, and then my fears will be calmed. So what of moralism or materialism or intellectualism or freedom, more time, whatever? If we could only find some, some prince, some, some people of influence, if I could only find a place of influence and then lock myself into that, then I will be saved. Why, why I could be delivered from all my troubles. But, and listen carefully, there's only one deliverer. Don't put your trust in pastors or princes. No, not that way. And the reason is very simple. Not only do they have a dangerous attraction, because we know how that goes. Popular voices, popular people, powerful people, we, we tend to kind of want to go that direction. Not only have a dangerous attraction, but look at verse 3 and, B and, and verse 4. Verse 3b and 4. They die. They die. There's a play on words here that they're just mere earthlings. They return to the earth. And so you have to think like the Bible thinks because the Bible makes us think way past life on earth. And so you say, yes, people are important. Relationships are important, but they're not the most important. And if we lean on them as we would lean on God, we will be greatly disappointed. Why? Well, here's the Bible answer. On the day the great ones die, all their plans perish, right? And it's not just that they die, but all their weaknesses begin to show up in time. Because every human agent is still a human. The best of men we say around here a lot. The best of men are men at best. So, so when God helps us, yes, he generally uses means. And he generally uses human, humans as his means. And we thank God for that. But it's so dangerous to put your full trust in them. Because we're going to fail each other. We may simply forget to help. We may give the wrong kind of help. We may even use each other in our times of frailty. Put not your trust. Don't attach yourself. Don't feel safe in the sons of Adam. So that's the danger. And listen to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, he learned very early not to put himself or entrust himself to people. His mother and his brothers didn't believe him early on. A close friend denied him. Another betrayed him. And in John chapter 2, John writes, Jesus did not entrust himself to the crowds, for he knew the heart of all men. Okay, but here's the good news. And this sets us up, sets us up for the blessing. 
Verse 5, do you see it there? There is a deliverer worth praising. Happy is, blessed is, to be envied is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And loved ones, if we are delusioned by putting our trust in a human being, and then we do not replace that trust by trusting in God, then we commit ourselves to this kind of ceaseless cycle of looking for trust in all the wrong places. So we leave one group, we leave one man, we leave one woman, we leave one church only to find one, stay a little while, and leave another. Looking for happiness, looking for help, looking for hope, and you keep using human means and help to think that that's your hero, that's the way out, that's your hope, that's your help. Your marketing campaigns depend on the fact that a human being, to quote the Rolling Stones, sorry, can't get no satisfaction. But, verse 5, happy is the one. To be envied is the one. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, who is everything human beings are not. And so then, he's the subject. Isn't he there in verses 6 to 9? There are, I think, 11 verbs about this this God of Jacob. And there are essentially two themes. Verse 6, this God made everything. Heaven, earth, sea, and he keeps things ordered. And he's, he's doing what he said in Genesis 9. He makes promises and he keeps promises in his creation. And so July 4th is not really the weekend to talk about creation and creationism and all that. But that's just one of the themes about who the Lord is. But the second theme is mostly gospel. So look at verses 7 and 8 and 9. And do you see the word Lord there so much? And it's spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you see how they do that? Well, that word is translated Messiah in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the Greek, ver- a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so New Testament Christians would see that word Lord and they would immediately, instinctively replace it with Jesus Christ. Because that word was translated intermittently. So Christ, verse 7, obligates himself to the oppressed, to the defrauded. Christ obligates himself to those who are intimidated, extorted, those who, of us who, gets the, who get the wool pull over our eyes. Christ helps those wronged by the cruelty and greed and injustice of this world. Christ feeds them. Christ sets prisoners free. Verse 8, Christ gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteous and righteousness. Okay, listen carefully. How, what does that mean? Is that works? How were people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved in the Old Testament the same way they were saved in the New Testament by faith in God, Old Testament, faith in Christ, New Testament. So the Lord loves the righteous. Verse 8, Christ watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. So you say yes to these things. So as Jesus sings this prayer, praise, He will model this in his earthly ministry. So when you think about verses 6 through 9, wasn't that part and parcel of the earthly ministry of Jesus? I mean, Jesus was oftentimes at odds with the influential people, with rich people, with gifted people, with powerful people, with talented people, people who could make things happen, self-sufficient, moral people, but people who only trusted in themselves. But, The people who knew that they can't make anything happen. The dead people, those bowed down, verse 8b, those oppressed, blind, needy. The people dead in their sins. 
the spiritually hungry, Jesus Christ helped them. So I, I'm going to give you some homework. When you read through the Gospels, take note of this. The rich, the powerful, the wise, and the self-assured, whenever they would come to Jesus, they always asked this question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You with me? Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. But the sinners, the poor, the outcast, we could even say the prostitutes, they come weeping, they come bearing gifts, and they come asking for mercy. Do you understand the difference? Because there is a massive, massive difference. Verse 8b, Jesus Christ lifts up those who are bowed down. Let me give you a statement and a question. Statement. Would I be too far off when I say that much, or we'll say some of contemporary Christianity is all about standing up and not bowing down? Right? So I go to church. I want to find out how to make, make things great. So, so I'll be so great that I will never need to bow down again, maybe not even to God. Because you will never feel or need, your need of Him if you're not bowed down. And you, you will have such small thoughts about God if you have small thoughts about what His righteous standard actually is. And you lie to yourself if you think that, you know, just that much more and I'll be a righteous person. That's my statement. Here's the question. Are you bowed down? Because verse 8b, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. So in our family devotion on Monday night, I told the kids and myself, I didn't tell my wife because I was still mad at her about the whole air conditioning thing. But I told my kids and I told myself, stay needy before God, stay needy before God because then and only then you'll be helped because the Lord lifts up the needy, those bowed down. That's why verse 9 says, the Lord watches over the strangers in a strange land. He upholds the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Now just look at me just for a second. Do you know what that word frustrate means in the Hebrew language? It means, and it's a play on words, he bends. He bends the way of the wicked. Why does he have to bend them? Because they're not bowing down to him. Do you understand that? So those frustrated people, God may have done these things to send them to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the point. He frustrates the ways of the wicked, not to be mean, but to make them see Jesus Christ. So, if you're frustrated, I'm going to give you a simple little answer. You ready? Could not repentance and humility and prayers to God to help you in gospel graces be your only answer? Let me say that again. Frustrated with life? Repentance, humility, Prayers to our God to help us in gospel graces could be our only answer. So again, if you're frustrated, could, may, could God may not have done these things to send you to Jesus Christ so that you would bow down to him, so that he would bend you? Because Jesus Christ did these things in his earthly ministry. Didn't he do verses 7 and 8 and 9 in his earthly ministry? Yes, he did. And he continues to do them in his sal- salvation promises even now. Okay. A decision to praise. Jesus made it. Jesus leads it. We become part of it. A deliverer to praise, Jesus Christ. And then a reason to praise. That's verse 10. Do you see it there? It's very, very simple. It's very, very simple. Christ reigns forever. 
Verse 10, for every generation. That's the hallelujah. Revelation 19, 6. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation nineteen six. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Let me just close with this. Scholars tell us that these last five psalms of praise were finalized. They were completed after the time of the exile. It means that when none of the things that they were to praise God for that were written in Psalm 146 to Psalm 150, when none of these things were in evidence, they had no king, they had no land, they had a pathetic second temple, there was corruption in the priesthood, there was no Messiah. At that point, the psalmist calls for praise. Which means what? Well, it means that praise is not only the overflow of the good things that God does for us. Praise is the overflow of our faith. We sing by faith. We pray by faith because we live by faith. So we trust in the God of the gospel and we trust in the one who's provided all that was necessary to lead and to fuel our praise because the Psalms invite us to see how Jesus rightfully and perfectly fulfilled those exhortations to praise God, enabling us all of us to live a life of praise to God as well. So loved ones, we put no trust, no full trust in anything human for hope and for help. We only trust in God. We trust in the God of the gospel who says we are righteous by faith, who says that we essentially praise him in faith. Will we struggle in these things? Absolutely. Will we be blind and hungry at times? Certainly. But listen carefully to this. This is the the great biblical exhortation that's almost a common theme through the whole of the Bible. When we are weak... When we are more easily prone to bow down in our weakness, then what? Then and only then will we be helped by the God of the gospel. By the God of the gospel. So I came across this little thing just by chance this week. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's in his book, Prince Caspian. So Aslan, and you know he's the type of Christ, he says to Prince Caspian, do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? Okay, so do you feel yourself sufficient to praise God? Caspian, I don't think so, sir. Aslan, good. Good. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. You were not. Why? Well, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Let's pray together. And I would ask those who will be helping serve communion would come forward now. Oh, gracious God, we would pray for Jesus' sake that whatever is good and true and helpful that would stick with us and those things that just got in the way, you would remove us from them so that we would see Jesus Christ and his righteousness in everything. And we pray this for his sake and for his glory. Amen.